Morning has broken, like the first morning. Blackbird has spoken, like the first bird. Praise for the singing, praise for the morning. Praise for them springing fresh from the world. I love the season of spring. Spring is hard not to love, isn't it? Spring is so beautifully dressed with new life emerging from below and above. It's not just blooming tulips and budding trees that make for a happy Easter, though, is it? I believe the long-awaited wind of change blowing through our gardens point to a greater change for which we all long. I believe the season of spring points to an even greater spring for which we all hope. It's this greater spring that I'm here to talk about this morning. What is the greater spring for which we hope? It is the hope for a place without pain, tears, and suffering. It is the hope for a land without loneliness, separation, and death. It is the hope for a kingdom without fear, tyranny, and injustice. The assurance that this kind of spring is coming, and in some way is already here, that is what we celebrate today. That is what really makes Easter happy, and not only happy, but jubilant, joyful, unbelievable joy. I want us to believe it a little more this morning, if we can. The greater spring of which I speak is far superior than the spring that changes with the passing of the seasons. This greater spring is from everlasting to everlasting. And here, here's where it all begins. The greater spring begins in the springing forth from the grave, the risen body of Jesus Christ. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. This is the impossible news made possible by God. This is the scandal of Easter. Jesus was dead. Now he is alive bodily, physically. Easter is a historical event, if it is anything at all. And if it's true, then the greater spring has begun. If it's true, the 5th century preacher was right when he said this about the effects of Jesus' resurrection. The order of things is changed. The tomb devours death and not the dead. The house of death becomes the mansion of life. Where can we look to see if it's true, this greater spring? Sometimes in the month of March, I start moseying around my yard looking for signs of spring. Does anybody else do something like that? Sometimes I start too early and I'm disappointed. <laughs> Give me a sign, O oh earth, that winter is not forever. A purple crocus poking up for air. The greens of a daffodil emerging from its slumber. Grass. I'll even take a little green grass as a sign of something warmer to come. Where can we look to see the signs of this greater spring, whether it's coming or not? 
Where can we look to find signs of a future filled with nothing but love and beauty and goodness and God? Where might we mosey around in hopes of spotting even a glimmer of hope for a greater spring? Or is it all a pipe dream? There are many places we could look, but there's one place we must look if we want to consider the possibility of a greater spring. We must look at the first century eyewitness testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. That may seem like a very odd place to look, but if, if it's true that the historical man named Jesus really rose from the dead, That means something has happened to the fabric of the universe, a universe in which death is such a natural part. If it's true that Jesus really conquered the grave, if the man Jesus really means anything at all for us today, then we must start with the eyewitness testimony about the events that transpired on the first Easter morning. So now we turn to an ancient document called the Gospel of Matthew, written one generation after the time of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, starting with verse 1. Listen for the voice of the good shepherd who calls you by name. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Hi. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the good news we have received, in which we stand, and by which we are saved. Thanks be to God. It must be stated from the outset that Matthew does not make this story easy for us modern people to believe. With all his talk of angels and earthquakes, he could have made it more believable by toning down the angel talk, right? He could have worked harder to make it sound a little more scientifically credible. Instead, 
he writes about a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descending from heaven, rolling back the stone and sitting on it. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to describe the angel's appearance. It was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And what's interesting is that there are three other accounts of the resurrection in the New Testament. You all know that with slight differences in each account. Is it an angel or a human? Is it one man or two? There are little differences in the accounts, and these differences present a stumbling block to some of us modern people, obsessed with precision as we are. See, they can't get their story straight. You can't trust them. There is no greater spring. All the talk of hope and love coming from a good and gracious God nice try. What you see is what you get. The rest is wishful thinking. So let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is how many modern folks evade the implications of Easter. I would argue, however, that though there are differences in the details, the main message is the same. In fact, the differences actually help me to believe the main message. Now hear me out. The fact that there are minor variations leave me with this inescapable impression that something actually happened. Something must have happened. Something so profound and dizzying and remarkable that getting all the details straight didn't seem to matter much at the time. Sorting out the particulars didn't seem quite as important as getting out the main message because the main message was absolutely revolutionary. And the message is this. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Therefore, the eternal spring is coming. Indeed, it's here in part. Christ's living presence is among us. Christ's kingdom is here. Hallelujah. Amen. Imagine this. You and a friend visit the grave of someone you dearly love just days after his death. It's very early in the morning. You haven't even had your morning cup of coffee yet. You step through the soggy soil, the mud squishing under your feet. Blurry-eyed, you and your friend notice something's not right. You see the tombstone toppled onto its side, and then you look down and see a six-foot hole in the ground wide enough to pull out a body. Or was it a seven-foot hole? Who cares? It was a hole. You dare to peek down into the hole, and to your utter dismay, you are horrified to see that the coffin is opened and the body of your loved one is missing. Suddenly, Someone speaks to you in the midst of your terror, or was it to somebody's? Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Out of fear and in great joy, you and your friend do what the man says, or was it an angel? That's the least of your worries right now. What most concerns you is the missing body. Where is he? Is it true? Has he really been raised? And when did Jesus ever say he'd be raised? Oh, is that what he meant when he said he'd rise again on the third day? 
You hurry on, running as fast as you can to your friends, your mind racing faster than your feet. Jesus is the sole object of your thoughts. You remember with pain the tragedy of his crucifixion. You desperately hope that the messenger's words are true, but you are afraid because it all seems too good to be true. For if Jesus has been raised, then the eternal spring has broken into the present. If Jesus has been raised, then the forces of life are stronger than the power of death. If Jesus has been raised, then God is real, and he looks like Jesus. But still, you're afraid. You're afraid because if Jesus has been raised, then what does that mean for you? and your future. It means your life is full of purpose, but also full of uncertainty. It means you're not in charge, but the one who raised Jesus is in charge. It means you've got work to do, people to forgive, and the mission of Jesus to advance. If Jesus has been raised, it means you must join with a community of people to further that mission and to worship that Jesus together. You may even have to sit through boring church services again. You may even have to talk to some boring church people again, if Jesus has been raised. But if not, then you are left to yourself to do as you please. If not, then you are left to yourself in your grief. Good Friday is just Friday, and the course of history is just one tragic crucifixion after another. If Jesus has not been raised, then you and I are stuck in our sin. If the tomb is not empty, your soul certainly will be. If Jesus has not been raised, you are rightfully terrified of every troubling thing going on in our world today. Or as Paul put it, If Christ has not been raised, our faith is useless, those who have died are lost forever, and we of all people are most to be pitied. So you tell me, has Jesus been raised? Now just like us moderns, many first century people had a hard time saying yes to this question. You see, they knew just as well as we do that dead people stay dead. So what's ironic, though, is that the stuff that bothered them is very different than the stuff that bothers us. They were quite familiar with reports of angels and these heavenly signs. And I'm talking about Jews and non-Jews, pagans, people of all sorts. It didn't bother them, the talk of angels. Neither were they troubled by the differences in the detail of the accounts. But get this, do you know what bothered the people in the first century when they heard this report of the resurrection? What bothered the the ancients the most were the women. (laughs) The women. Most of us probably didn't think twice about the fact that the first eyewitnesses called up to the stand to defend the truthfulness of the resurrection were women. But this was a major stumbling block in the first century for believing that Jesus truly rose from the dead. 
But in all four accounts, there is an unlikely consensus. Women were the first to see the risen Jesus and testify to his resurrection. You see, in the first century world, women held a very low place in society. This low status transcended religion and politics. Women in ancient Rome could not vote or hold political office. Women in ancient Judaism were considered less intelligent than men. As such, women were not allowed to testify in the courts of law. Say there's a guy mugged by a robber, and three women see it happen. They're the only ones. Their testimony is invalid, and the robber goes free. Why? Because they're women. Just one awful example from the first century Jewish historian Josephus drives the point home. He writes, From women, let no evidence be accepted because of the silliness and rashness of their sex. In other words, women can't be trusted. That was the majority opinion in the first century world, religious and pagan alike. For this reason, the ancient Greek philosopher Celsus He mocked the church's testimony to the empty tomb. Why? Solely because it came from what he calls a half-frantic woman. So you tell me, can women be trusted to report the facts accurately? Paul says it best. God chose what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. God chose what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. God chose the women because God trusted them, even if the world didn't. And truth be told, the women earned his trust. If you read the whole story, you'll remember that it was only the women who stood by Jesus' side while he suffered, died, and was buried. The men had run off like cowards, but the women bravely stood there by their Lord. I'm going to appear first to the women, Jesus must have thought. They will be the first preachers of my gospel. In fact, they are the perfect choice for announcing my gospel. Indeed, my good news is the news that the old order of things is passing away, and the new order of justice and love are coming. Yes, women, as the first evangelists, that will surely be a sign that the eternal spring that will be a sign that the eternal spring is just around the corner. So it happened, as the first day of the week was dawning, a messenger from God said to the trembling women, do not be afraid. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. So in light of the women's testimony, in light of the unlikely rise of the persecuted early church, in light of the various eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, I believe the most rational, logical conclusion is that something happened on the first Easter Sunday. And if it's true, it makes all the difference. The body of Jesus was missing. He is no longer buried in Palestine. This was not a vision. This was not mass psychosis. Certainly this isn't a power play by church leaders trying to trick us. The only thing church leaders gained for about 300 years was
persecution, imprisonment, and death. Something happened, my friends, and on that third day after the burial and horrific death of the young Jewish man named Jesus, whether that something was the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it cannot be proven, but neither can it be explained away easily. Actually, I experience a curious relief when I read smart people trying to explain it away. They can't get their story straight either. Which of the alternative explanations is most credible? (laughs) It's hard to know. Something happened, my friends, and it makes all the difference for you and for me and for our groaning world that longs for a greater spring. I want to close by highlighting just one way that Jesus' bodily resurrection makes all the difference. I want to talk about fear. Fear is a prominent theme in our scripture passages, in our scripture passage. The guards shook for fear of the angel that, and that became, they became like dead men. The women ran off with fear and great joy. And Jesus knows that the angel's command to the women bears repeating, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. This is an essential part of the Easter good news, this talk about fear. But we live in a world of fear, don't we? In some ways, this is nothing new. W.H. Auden wrote his most ambitious poem in 1947, following World War II. Fittingly, he entitled it, The Age of Anxiety. The Age of Anxiety. The poem struck a chord for the people of the day, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for it. Today, few of us have ever heard of the poem, including me. I had to Google it. But the phrase itself has stuck around into our present age, the age of anxiety. Do we still live in an age of anxiety? After the events of 9-11, a book was written called The Age of Terror, One can easily think of other nouns to fill out the phrase. Many have said just this about fear. Today they say we live in an age of fear. So what are we afraid of? Hmm? We're afraid of terrorists and shootings. We're afraid of other religions and others in our own religion with different opinions. We're afraid of guns. Or we're we're afraid of people who want to take away our guns. We're afraid of the Earth's destruction due to climate change. Or we're afraid that we'll destroy each other because we can't agree on things like climate change. We're afraid of the left and we're afraid of the right. We're afraid of each other. We're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid that we're wrong. And perhaps we're afraid that we're right. We are afraid of death. We're afraid of cancer and car accidents. We're afraid for ourselves and for our loved ones. What are we not afraid of? We're not afraid of God. That is perhaps the most troubling feature of the age of fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the ancients believed. Perhaps that's why we're so afraid. But the risen Jesus shows us an even better way. Perfect love casts out fear, you see. In the perfection of love, Jesus says to us this morning what he said to the two Marys at the empty tomb. 
What did he say? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of death, for I have just defeated it. Do not be afraid of life, because I am with you even to the end of the age. Do not be afraid of the present, for I am alive and at work in the midst of it through the Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid of the future, because I will make sure that the eternal spring comes at last. Do not be afraid. This is Jesus' Easter command to us today. And when Jesus commands us, he gives us the strength to carry it out. Do not be afraid. Christ is risen. Spring is coming. Spring is here. Alleluia. Amen. Let us pray. Risen Jesus, prove yourself to us this morning by casting out all that we're afraid of with the perfection of your love. For us and for the world, you died and raised for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.